this is a series of hard acts to follow. You realize that I followed a, a great man of God that uh, <clears throat> has his own his own uh, Protestant group that he will not let me in. As a matter of fact, I did want to know to you, I happen to know who the other member is, and it is another professional. There's no layman in that group, guys, and you don't want to mess with him. <clears throat> I'll tell you another uh, negative aspect. It, you know, it's hard to follow all these. He's the only guy in the world I know that knows what the word patrician means. I, I thought it was a hairdresser when I first heard it. Out. <laughs> then, of course, you've got to follow John. I mean, that, that's hard. Anybody that can sing his sermons. I mean, the sermons are not any good, but the songs are incredible. I just love to hear <laughs> and He looks so pretty in the morning. It's, it really is something to be around a guy like that. But, of course, Ted, it was kind of discouraging being with Ted. Any guy that has a ministry such that when he goes out to visit somebody, he has his own private house on a hill. Now, that is absurd. <laughs> you know, the, the guys I go visit, they make me sleep outside in the sleeping bag. Good to be back with you uh, again today, and I want to do... Uh, talk on obedience, and would like to start with just uh, some review from yesterday, if I may. I first want to try to kind of sum up what we said, and I'd like to note to you that in the counsel of God, God uh, obedience is a cornerstone to the counsel of God, as is grace, and we kept wanting to match them against each other in our discussion yesterday. But I want to tell you that they are a, uh, uh, a cornerstone, and it is part of the significant counsel of God. We live in a time where uh, counseling is being held as one of the great remedies of our society. Today, there are more people applying for counseling degrees than there are for teaching and preaching degrees. The confidence in the Word is eroding. And we think if we can just add a little psychology to the issue, we'll solve the problem. Gentlemen, it's one of the great ruses being placed upon us. We're in a society where victimization is the claim to the excuse for all things. If God is sovereign and God is a caring, loving God, it's very hard to understand how we could possibly be involved in victimization. We're in a society that's driving and desiring social action. And I want to suggest to you that obedience is the cornerstone will take away the issue of changing society because we can change society by our position in society through Matthew 5.16 and 1 Peter 3.15, letting our light so shine before men and living out a hope that people can see. Without obedience, we are eternally trapped by what society tells us is right because in obedience, I must look up to God's standards and let that be my lifting stone, not let society be my standard. We are always working on the delta. And i got to tell you, as long as I look at the delta, I may perceive myself to be righteous. My divorce rate is only 40% while the world's is 45 I'm going to tell you, the 5% guys is not very redeeming. And until we are people committed to obedience, we'll always be pushed around in that arena. The definition. I went over the definition yesterday. I didn't uh, write it down. I'd like to go over that with you. And that is, as we looked at uh, we looked at the uh, at the definition. I mentioned that what the dictionary said yesterday. And the reason I made those points to you is I wanted to note to you that the dictionary would lead you to believe that if I just obeyed the scriptures, if I just did the to-do list, if I can just find a to-do list, I've got this thing made. But in the scriptures, there is a call to attitude. There's a call 
to a commitment and a hope in God with an endurance in our relationship in that obedience which takes it outside and above the definition by Webster of obedience. And we're men that are being called to that higher calling. As we look at the Scripture today, you're going to find that the only way we can obey it is with the attitude and the hope placed in God. Now, the questions I got most asked yesterday is the assurance question. And that verse that's been blurred a little bit there is 1 John 2, 3 through 5. I mean, what does the word assurance mean? Somebody tell me what the word assurance means. TJ, what's it mean? Assurance. Assurance. Whoop. Is that how you pronounce it in Colorado? Assurance? Umbrella. Confident knowledge. Anybody else? Ed, where's Ed Turley? Is he already gone? Had to go? All right. Rick, what does it mean? Warm fuzzy. Warm fuzzy. It's confidence. It's a sh- it is earnest money. It is the thing in which we say I have a confidence that something is true. The Scripture tells us that if we are men committed to disobedience, we have no reason to believe or have confidence that we are saved. It does not mean you have lost your assurance. It means if we continue in disobedience, if we continue not to go the way the commandments lead us, we have no evidence on the table that we are saved. doesn't mean if you have been saved, it doesn't take your salvation away from you, but the Scripture says you're dealing in no man's land. The only assurance we have in evidential manner for our salvation is our obedience. We have the promises of the Scripture, but the only evidence in our life is our commitment to obedience. We talked a lot about God people love. And the point I was trying to make to you that in our relationship to God, it is cornerstone on our obedience because that is how we gain our knowledge and our intimacy with God. We can believe that we like to go sit up in the mountains and contemplate the moon or contemplate a mountain peak or a snowstorm and say, in this I see God. But the reality transaction, the reality transaction is found in us and our willingness to obey the Scriptures in the throes of the world. A man not given to obedience, a man not taking the Word of God into the marketplace is a man who is denying his personal relationship to God. You find it in the Word. You find it in meditation, guys. But the definition, excuse me, but the description of God in the Bible is propositional and it's not personal. And to make the propositional truths come alive in the personal it takes you taking his instruction and taking it in the marketplace and obeying it, and that's when propositional truth becomes personal. So in our love of God, that is found in obedience. And to love people will always be found in the foundation of our relationship to God. Until we understand our relationship to God, I will never know how to love you. Because my relationship will always be gated by me manipulating and using you for my benefit. And until I understand my relationship to God, it is, if not impossible, close to being impossible, of really serving you without an agenda. 
And the thing that will set you apart in the marketplace, the thing that will distinguish you from different people in the marketplace, is man that can serve another man and not have an agenda. I got a lot of guys trying to serve me, but they all got their arm about that far up my hip pocket reaching for my money. There's always an agenda. The man who has a relationship anchored in God can position himself to serve another man and not have an agenda. And that is the only way you'll bridge over and into another man's life to serve him is when you erase that agenda. And that comes from an obedience in your relationship to God and then taking the commandments God has given you and transacting them in the marketplace. And that displays love for people. <clears throat> Third comment I would like to make is because guys kept discussing with me that well, the Bible says some more, and the Bible says some more about obedience, and I totally agree. I only gave you, at best, a very thin flyover survey. I encourage you to take the work we did and go in and really discuss, and I mean, excuse me, really study obedience. And take some time in the Scriptures and go through them, looking at those key words and trying to understand what they're saying to you, and look at them in depth to try to gain an understanding of the call to obedience. It is in the counsel of God. Obedience is a cornerstone to our relationship to God, just as grace is. And I said when we finish that discussion, we really need to ask five questions. And that's the five questions I raised. I, there's no way I'm going to handle those five questions. I'm going to try to leave you as, with as many questions and as confusion as I can in keeping with my style of teaching. But I really would like to take on, we, we discussed what is obedience. I'd like to drop down to what do I obey? And if we have time, I'll circle back up and maybe pick up some of those other things. But the question is, what do I obey? Now, let me get myself oriented here because I've done a couple of things. <clears throat> All right? And I would like to take four cuts at this book we call the Bible. This is what we obey. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw this to you, know, and this is what we obey. But I say, gee... That's a lot of words, and that's a lot of pages. What, how do I get at the Bible, and what's going on with the Bible? So I'd like to make four cuts with you at the Scripture, if I may, to try to get you to think with me on what do we obey in the Bible. And I'm going to take four distinct cuts, and I'll start and stop on each cut. And the first one I want to look at is just the Bible as our source. This is the total Bible itself. Now, as a layman, I've had the... Beg your pardon. No, that was done by Walt earlier. <laughs> I would never draw something that sloppy. Never in my million years would I do something. Is somebody being sarcastic? I think that's a great picture. Kind of a 3D perspective there. I could have thrown a little shadow down on the ground for you. I know how to do those things. Really. <laughs> yes, that's right. As a layman, I've had a unusual privilege because God has given me men who have cared about me and worked with me and mentored me and taught me and brought me along. Guys, it's an unbelievable privilege. I encourage you to always find men like that in your life. And in that, I've always uh, been thankful because they've helped me understand things, but there's so much that the theologians are saying to us that I've got to tell you, my head spins trying to understand like what is inerrancy versus infallibility? And, and what's this position versus that position? And, and they use words on me. And when I about get up there, they use superlaptarianism, 
which I think is really a description of a guy jogging and somebody catching them is what it is. But it's hard for me to understand theologically what, what all of that means. And I would say to you, some of you guys struggle with those same kinds of phrases. And I always try to reduce things down to where something with a simple mind like mine, I can get a hold of that and hold on to it and walk around with it. Now, guys, I want to say to you, theology will never get you into heaven. Theology will never get you a better scorecard with God. If I'm more accurate than that man, I ain't going to give me no distance with God. And though I'm going to press you on theology, theology is only for your best interest to better prepare you to know the counsel of God so that you can be a man that responds more meaningfully in the opportunities that God gives you. Do you does that make sense to you? So I'll pursue this, but I want to tell you I don't hang a lot of carrots out at the end of it. But we're a people that are living in jigsaw puzzle theology. We go to one speaker and he gives us this piece. And they go to the next speaker and he gives us this piece. And I go to this guy and he gives me this next piece. And I don't know how in the world they all go together. No sense of how they go together. And so no, no wonder we come up with these weird theologies and we start chasing rabbits and the newest fad that comes out. And I've been a Christian 24 years and I could start discussing fads with you and just tell you the season of the fads. And guys, when I pass off the scene, those just continue going on. And what I'm calling to you is to become men of the Word that you begin to make the Word yours and spend the rest of your life becoming men who master the Bible. It is not your preacher's responsibility to master the Bible for you. It's not this, it is not this meeting's job to master the Bible for you. If you're going to master the Bible, commit to yourself for it for the rest of your life and take your time and begin to learn it and absorb it into your being. All right? Now, what about the Bible as a source? Well, let me take you through a little history of the Bible. If you dated back to when I was coming up in Christianity, when I was a young puppy dog, if I would have asked my parents about the Bible, it's the Word of God. And when you put it on the shelf, you do not put a coffee cup on the Bible because that was the Word of God. Well, I'm not teasing you. You didn't put it on the coffee table and put your feet on it. And you put it in a place where it was left alone. It was a revered book. Not necessarily read, but it was revered. <laughs> and if I'd, asked, if I'd asked that generation 50 years ago, they would have said to me, it is the inspired Word of God. It is the ins it's inspired by God. There is an inspiration, even though... <laughs> just notice how I spell that little rascal. Inspiration here. Inspiration of God. All right? Don't knock it. I did that very early this morning. But what they did is, is they did that. Some of our seminaries and our colleges begin to tell us that's not valid because, yeah, it may be inspired, but does that mean every word is inspired? Does it really mean that? And so all of the little evangelical conservative yo-yos like myself came and said, well, there's verbal inspiration. And so all the words are inspired by God. So we'll mox nix this one. And a few years later, they said, yeah, maybe, maybe there's verbal inspiration, but is it plenary? First place, I don't know what the world plenary means. So I had to go look it up. And plenary means the total words, all of it. Every, you mean every word in the Bible is inspired? And so all the conservatives got together and said, that's another defense line. Yes, it's verbal plenary inspiration. And a few, this is all happening in my lifetime, guys. So a few years later, they said, yeah, that's neat. We'll buy that it's inspired and it's verbal and it's plenary, but is it infallible? Is there potentially errors in there? 
we'll buy that it's verbal, we'll buy that it's verbally plenary inspired, but it's not infallible. And so we huddled and grunted and groaned and we said, yeah, but it's verbally plenary, infallible inspired. You've got to believe all of that about the Bible. And so we buy it, even though we're not necessarily knowing what it means. And so we settled back down after another battle and they raised another battle. And they said, yeah, but it, it may be verbally plenary, infallibly inspired, but is it inerrant? How could it be infallible and not inerrant? Oh, yes, it could be true, but it could be a little error in it. Like we didn't count the years right. Where one, one deal says we killed 120,000 soldiers and the next, the next depiction shows 120,600. Could that be inerrant? So we wrestled and went through all these uh, tirades among ourselves and we said, no, no, we'll buy this verbally plenary, infallibly, inerrantly inspired. Did we win the battle? No, they came back and said yes. But is it unlimited inspiration? Now, guys, all I'm doing is I'm telling you the history of the involvement of the ignorant argument that goes on. What is your position? Is it inerrant? Is it infallible? Are you getting tossed to and fro yourself on what you do think about the Bible? How do guys like ourselves ever reduce this down where we hold on to it? Because the minute we do, I'm going to assure you, we have a seminary cranking guys out as fast as we can that's going to try to figure out how to confuse you with some words that you will not understand on what in the world a position in the Bible is. So what is your position in the Scriptures? And I'm going to suggest to you four truths that I'd like for you to approach the Bible with that I believe will answer all of this chase to folly. First, I think we must realize if we're going to review the Bible, we come to a conclusion that God is truth. We'd have no problem buying that because of his own declaration of who he is and because of his own creation powers and because he is God, he is truth. And therefore, since that's a major premise of our thinking, the minor premise then would be 1 Timothy 3.16 that says what? What's it say, John? So, as a matter of fact, it goes on to say that it is the full word that will make a man have a full and complete life in serving God. It says that the Bible is God-breathed, and therefore if our major premises is God is truth, and our minor premises that he wrote the word, we don't care if it's verbally plenary, infallible, and errant, unlimited inspiration. The Bible thus is true, in total, completely. And what we need to do is just go back to the simple truth that God is truth. And since God represented himself as Christ on the earth, Christ himself authorized and ordained the scripture as truth. We do not need to rapture. I mean, we don't need to rap with all of the phrases we can get thrown on us. We can go to the simple conclusion that the Bible is truth, drive a stake in the ground, and begin to deal with it. Let me say to you, I could hand you a book, and you're going to open that book, and I'm going to say to you, believe that there can be some errors in it. Do you think you would find errors in it? Yes. Why would you find errors in it? You're looking for it because you've got the mindset when you walk into it. If I say to you that the Bible is truth, will you find errors? No. But will you find potential apparent contradictions? Yes. Which most of them, if not all of them, can be resolved with any kind of logical thinking. But it's all in your mindset as you approach it. 
And if we start with the basic premise that God is truth, you can only end up with the concept that the Bible is total truth. And that's how we ought to approach it. And get away trying to wordsmith our way through it to stay away from facing the reality of it. The second great challenge we've got to come to is that God is supernatural. The, bi the, biblical is su the Bible is supernatural. It is speaking about supernatural things. Yes, there are miracles. Yes, there is an invisible world. Yes, there is a great battle going on. Yes, there is life after death. We're dealing in the supernatural realm. So as we pick up the Bible as a source, we must come to that conclusion and deal with it accordingly. And so if sometimes it appears supernatural, the answer is yes. If you talk, read the great guys who say there are no miracles, you must understand their foundational basic supposition is that there are no miracles. Then they read it and they say, that can't be a miracle. Why? Because I said there are no miracles when I went into it. That's their approach to them. We declare there are no miracles. Thus, when I read the flood condition, there are no miracles. It wasn't a miracle. As he spread the Red Sea, no, there is a phenomenon. A comet came over, etc., etc. Because they rule out entering it, there are no miracles. But we're dealing with a supernatural God doing supernatural things, and we must always approach the Bible from that condition. Secondly, you must interpret it and read it with consistency and secondly, as you would read any other document, DOC stands for document. If you were to ask Walt, how do you interpret the Bible? Walt would say to you, exactly the way you interpret the newspaper. And I would say to you, that's a fairly frightening thought, the way I interpret the newspaper. <laughs> so I want to twist that a little bit. As I pick up a document to read it, I have rules in which I read that document. I let the document explain itself. I understand who the authors are. I understand the position of it. I read for the logical linkage of how it goes together. I read my pronouns carefully. But I interpret consistently. I don't interpret chapter 1 with this set of rules, and then I go to chapter 8 and interpret with a different set of rules. Do I? No. To understand that book and that author's mind, I must interpret it with a consistent set of rules. Now, our theologians came up with a word called hermeneutics. That is not an insect. That is a technique of study. And all it says is the consistent ways in which you interpret anything you read is exactly the way you can read the Scriptures. But do it consistently from beginning to end. So the question is, what do I, what do I obey? What are my commands? Comes in with understanding that God is truth, that there is a supernatural, and how I go about uh, uh, interpreting what I am reading. And the last and the wrap-up point, any time I reach to the Scriptures, I most always understand that God's revelation is superior to man's reasoning. Thus, as I read a truth in the Scripture, and I say, that just doesn't look like that would work in the business place. John and I are in the same, we're in the electronics computer business, and as we're wailing away at this business world, I'm not sure that God says that a new commandment I give to you is love one another, and I look at this comp competitor I'm trying to bash his brains in and beat him and put him out of business, I don't know how to apply that scripture. Would that, well, therefore, that doesn't work in the business world. I remember clearly when I worked for the IBM Corporation and came to Christ, I used to say, God, I'm, you're doing a great job, and I want to tell you I appreciate you taking care of heaven. And I want to tell you I think you're doing a great job, God, but I don't think you quite understand IBM. <laughs> I'll handle it from here out. And I said, my reasoning was superior to your revelation. We must understand that God's revelation is always superior to our reasoning. 
and it's what sets us apart from the animals, guys. It's what sets us apart in the marketplace. It's what distinguishes us as people of God. So let me suggest to you, as we approach the source, there are four things I there are, there are four things we want to get a hold of. Do not get caught up and worried about all the societies debating how we phrase this thing so we get through the labyrinth. Simply embrace it that God is true, the Bible is true. God is supernatural, the Bible is supernatural. I can interpret it like any other document, and God's revelation is always superior to my reasoning. Any questions on that? That's section one. Does somebody have a question? Yeah, man. Relating to uh, straining at gnats while swallowing camels, mm -hmm. is, uh, I get into debates with uh, the theological debate. To what degree, uh, you know, in a, in a guy that's that's professing the Lord and probably not walking with him, how do we how do we you know get the guy off the straining for gnats while he's swallowing the camel, you know, of his self righteousness or whatever? Two uh, two things, Ned. First, get him to join Erm. Meet with Walt, and he's got a group called Ern. We're going to get him into that as soon as possible. And let me say to you, this is my experience, guys. I, I don't know how to read this to you, but this is my experience. I've been a Christian 24 years and have been privileged to be, as I said, around good, great men of God who've taken their time with me. Understanding the counsel of God has taken me years. There's many a time I strained at Nats and yelled about difficulties and these men were patient with me and we just wrote over the deal. Understood, they understood and accepted my lack of understanding of what I was dealing with. It was not an issue to draw the line in the sand and beat them up on. Encourage them, try to help them move along with the issue. The major thing once you're going to remember, theology is not going to win your way to heaven. Theology is not going to, when you go to God I was more accurate than Lon, so God how about that? That's not going to win a single kudo. The theology and my understanding of the counsel of God better equips me to be the man of God in the marketplace. That's what I'm going after it for. Is that all right? So if a guy is going to strain it in that, I try to love him, I try to help him, but I don't go to Fifth City with him on the issue. Any other comment? Walt, do you want to comment on that? you agree with that? Any others? Any other questions on the Bible as whole? Okay. The second thing I think that we've got to deal with if we're going to be men of the Word, on what we apply, we must understand the Old Testament in the relationship to the New Testament. How do I view the Old Testament? Now, we talked at the book as a whole. Let's look at a book at the parts. Let's take it to its first cut. There is the Old Testament and the New Testament. For you guys that are fairly new in the faith, I want to break that through to you. That's the first big breakthrough, Old Testament and New Testament. And they were separated by 400 years in their writing. I want to tell you that this chart is an inaccurate chart because when I did it, well, I was in a rush to get out of town. There really should be two men down here, so be patient with me. There's five ways we can view the Scripture looking at the Old Testament and New Testament. Five ways just from a logical point of view that we can take them apart. We can say that the Old Testament and the New Testament are have equal weighting and I'm under obligation to the Old Testament the same way I'm under obligation to the New Testament. Now we might flinch and squirm on that because we go over to Galatians and we go into Romans and we realize that we're not, we're dead to the law now. And we might go into the Old Testament and find where the sacrifices are put behind. But I want to tell you there's a body of group, a body of people, who believe that the Old Testament weighs equally with the New Testament, and we're under obligation to the Old Testament just like we are to the New. One a guy would be Gardner Ted Armstrong. Gardner Ted Armstrong has a 
a group that is completely centered on this concept, and that's how he preaches it. There's two other positions we can have. We can believe that the New Testament has no potency, has no power. Only the Old Testament is valid. And we would buy that if we were Jews. We'd see no merit in the New Testament. And there's a Protestant group, and I'm sorry I can't remember their name, that believes the Old Testament has no merit. As a matter of fact, if you bought a Bible in their church, the Old Testament would not be in it. The Old Testament is, they think it's not only dead, they think the Old Testament, you shouldn't even read it. That's and they not, take it out. That's not the Reformed Dispensational Baptist. Yeah, that they, I think that's who that was. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> it might be the group of Erm. They, they may be doing it. <laughs> I cannot tell you who that group is, but I, I, I've met people from the group, and they simply do not believe there's any Old Testament. But those three really don't hold merit to us. They, they, they're extreme distortions of what can be. There's really only two we can look at. And that is my view of the New Testament by looking at it through the lens of the Old Testament or my view of the Old Testament as looking through the lens of the New Testament. I can either view it from this direction or that direction. By that I mean I'm looking at the New Testament in light of what the Old Testament says or I'm looking at the Old Testament in light of what the New Testament is. In words, the Old Testament is a standard in itself and the New Testament must be filtered through that standard. Now, if I stand in this position and say, I'll always view myself in the New Testament from my position in the Old Testament, I would tend to come to the position that says, unless a command is prohibited in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, we're still under obligation to that commandment. Now, one way I can say it is if the, unless the New Testament negates that command, I'm under obligation to it. And therefore, all commands of the Old Testament go across unless they are negated in the Scriptures. All right? Or, as I said, not only in the New Testament or the Old Te- also in the Old Testament. We're still under obligation or we're still permitted to doing given things. For instance, the Sabbath. If I believe this way, then how would I view the Sabbath? I would be, what? I'd have to keep the Sabbath. Because nowhere in the New Testament is the celebration of the Sabbath negated. I don't ever put it away. And so consequently, I would want to celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday night, and I'd want to have strict adherence of shutting down everything, stopping the work, and having Saturday off. Is there a Protestant group that's that way? And they are Seventh-day Adventists. And so they view the Old Testament, they view the Bible, viewing all the Bible from the Old Testament side, saying unless a command is prohibited in the New Testament, unless it's negated, I'm under obligation and I'm permitted. Tithing would be another one. I would view all of my giving from the Old Testament point of view, which would say to me, what about giving? It'd be 10% at least, and maybe the 33% that is discussed. But the Old Testament would set the standards, and that would be my obedience. Interestingly enough, polygamy is never stopped in the Old Testament. It's really stopped in the New Testament. And so this is one aspect that would be terminated. It existed in the Old, but was uh, preached against in the, New T- in the New Testament. Yes, Mike. Aside from elders and deacons, I see it's prohibited. I don't see there's a prohibition for polygamy aside from those when you're choosing an elder or a deacon. Well, since he's told us that we all should aspire to be elders and deacons, then we'll kind of sweep that up in that, Book, in that general category. Okay. So it says the conclusion is if we view it this way, that the church is Israel. The church is Israel. Okay? And we would always have three theocratic tendencies 
Because the promises of the Old Testament come to us. If I view the Bible by viewing it from the Old Testament forward, unless a command is negated, it's still in action. And secondly, I would view that the church now is Israel and the Jewish promises are gone. Judaism, Israel does not have the promises. And Walt talked about that last time. And I'll always have theocratic tendencies. I'm going to do, what does that mean? I'm going to try to manifest the kingdom of heaven on earth. Are you with me? I want to make earth the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of your social action is founded in finding the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And if I view the Bible in that way, this is a, this is a conclusion I must come to. And the promises to Israel, the nation of Israel, are my promises. Therefore, if I obey a certain way and obey a certain things, God is under commitment to bless me in given ways. Are we together? That's very, very important. Now, remember, I said the rule is what in interpreting? Consistency. Therefore, if you start interpreting the Bible that way, guys, you must stay interpreting the Bible that way. You can't jump back and forth. If you want to go that way, go that way, but stay that way. And so the promises are there. And the general promises to the nation of Israel are specific promises to the church that we belong to. Any questions on it? Yes, sir. The kingdom of God is as exactly equivalent to the church instead of having the view that the kingdom of God the church is the bride of Christ and the kingdom of God is the rule of God in men's lives. They would say that the kingdom of God, I'm not sure I know how to answer your question, but let me say to you, it's my understanding they would see the kingdom of God extending to the total of society. We should have the rules of the Bible being the pervasive guidelines of all of our legislation and under the rules we, that we, uh, uh, we live in and adhere to. I'm not saying that well, but do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it's a theocracy. It has very strong theocratical tendencies to it. Christian congressmen, all legislation are, are scriptural, is scriptural,ly based legislation. That uh, all of a society, the rule of society is biblical rule, and it will lead you to the decision that you must attack anything that's outside that boundaries. Because what I'm trying to get to is I'm trying to get the kingdom of heaven on earth. Because ultimately, what I'm trying to do is prepare it for Christ's return. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, what? Gardner Ted Armstrong. I point when I said it, guys. What's position two? Now, position two, I want to remind you, I'm looking at the Old Testament by looking back through the New Testament and saying, okay, I'm going to view the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. The New Testament will be my standard of truth under which I evaluate the, New, the Old Testament. If this is true, I will say, unless a command is restated, I left out the word command, but unless a command is restated, excuse me, unless restated as a command in the New Testament, we are not under obligation. In other words, unless the New Testament repeats it and restates it and establishes it as a command of Christ, then we're not under obligation. Now what would we do with the Sabbath? Take it or leave it. What? Any day you want it to be. Is there any position that would be? Does not Paul argue that situation? Each day is the same. 
You may have a new moon ceremony. You may have a half moon ceremony. I don't want all the moon ceremonies you can have. But the truth is, Sabbath is you worship when you want to worship, at the frequency you want to worship, where you want to worship, how you want to worship. The other way, Sabbath has to be on Saturday. If I'm going to view it that way, I've got to get that. I've got to get Sabbath back around to Saturday night, because there's no command in the other way that takes that up. Tithing now becomes what? What's the rule of tithing? Beg your pardon. Cheerful giver. Verse 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. The gating factor now is each man must give as he's decided for himself. There should be no reluctance, no sense of compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, by the way, out of curiosity, which is the easier of the commands? I'd rather have to tithe. Because I got that dog nailed at 10%. And when I give 10%, I say to God, put up or shut up. I hit the line. What do you want? In 2 Corinthians 9, 16, and 7, he's got me on the wall. He says, is that enough? I said, I really don't know that's enough. <laughs> Conclusion. Israel is not the church. The, com- the promises to Israel still exist. The promises to the church exist. The promises to Israel and the church are different things. The church has a different role. God is, God is not through with Israel. God will handle Israel. We're not through with the Jewish nation. The Old Testament promises are general. They are not specific. I've had people say to me, I've read this promise in the Bible, and God has given us this promise. No, They may have given you that promise, but they may not have given me that promise. Dawson Trotman was a man that extracted great promises out of the Old Testament. He took general promises and brought them to the specific in his life. They are not promises for the church. It doesn't mean that God would not speak through the Old Testament and give you a promise in the Old Testament, but they are not promises to us, where the promises in the New Testament are specific, and there's not a whole bunch of them in the New Testament. Well, the biggest one is first, uh, 2 Peter 1, 5-11. There's a couple of great promises in that. The Old Testament, therefore, were not under obligation to the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament for? Romans 15.4, it says it is for our hope. 1 Corinthians 10.11, it says it's for our admonishment. Consequently, it is for our instruction. We're under the instruction of the Old Testament, but we're not under obligation to the Old Testament. So I can see the life of David and learn a lot from him, but it is not doctrinal, nor is it a commandment. Do we understand? The commands of Christ are embodied inside the New Testament. So what do I obey? I obey the commands of Christ with this concept. Yes, sir. Brad. Gail, um, what about... I th- was always under the impression that it was the Mosaic Law that we were no longer under, but a command that was given such as to Noah, you can now partake of any amount, but do not consume the blood. I always assumed that that, that was still would carry over since it wasn't part of the Mosaic Law. No, you're saying there was some command back to Noah. Well, yeah, what if, what if there's some commands? I don't know if, the, if that one is repeated in the New Testament, but there are some commands yeah. in the Old Testament that are not of the Mosaic Law and it's may right. not be repeated. And I wasn't talking just about the Mosaic Law. I don't have any command. And let me, let me substantiate my argument for being into position two. Now, guys, this isn't dispensationalism. It just says God has worked in given periods. He seems to have different strategies at different times. 
What were the commands to Adam and Eve? You ought to be able to name them. There's only three of them. Don't eat of the tree. Do what? Here and dress the garden. Yes. And multiply. And be fruitful and multiply. And they only had three. Now, that's the good news. The bad news to violate any of them was capital punishment. I mean, you only had three, but any of them brought you to death. Now, they violated one of the commandments, and we went to this period when he went into a post-garden mode with him. Did all three commands go with them? No. The tree was taken away from them. Was the covenant in, the, his, in, his, in his challenge to Noah the same as Adam and Eve? No. As he goes through these different times, if you'll study those times, commandments drop off and on as you go from one strategy of God to the next. We see the most dramatic as we go into Moses. I agree with you on that. And we always want to hang on the Sinai group. But there's a series of commands. And as he shifts from period to period, you see him taking some out and putting some, some back in. So taking position two, where we always view it from the new position of God, and vis-a-vis -vis, that would be the New Testament, would stand the test of historically how he has always dealt with man. All right? Any questions on that? Yes, sir. I this have no idea if I can say this right. If I'm you don't, I don't have to answer it. This is the okay, rule. that's a deal. You, you, your position one, I see you losing some consistency within your consistency. Your position one says, says you look through the Old Testament, and unless it's changed by the New Testament, you stick with the Old Testament. But your position in two... I would think would be the same as your position in one, except going the other way, is you, you, you live by, by the New Testament unless the Old Testament um, comes okay, into play. But you're saying, you're not saying it that way, which is consistent to one and two. You're saying that, that you, you pretty much forget the Old Testament. You, you don't use the Old Testament. You go by New Testament with little... No, I'm not okay, saying here's it my right. question. Here's the deal. What do we obey? That, that is the gut issue. The Bible is full of things. What are you and I going to obey? Now, I just said to you, obedience is a cornerstone of Christianity. The question you've got to ask me is, tell me what I'm supposed to obey in this dumb thing. And I'm trying to sort down and begin to slowly walk through the Bible and cut piece after piece after piece where we get down and say, what are doctrinal? What are the absolute commands? What are the area of convictions? and begin to build a base to set you on a journey of understanding what you obey. That's all I'm trying to do. You're so, slowly. No. <laughs> yes, I do. And I said there's two positions you could take. The first three throw out. They're, they're not, they have no bearing on us. And that's these three. But, oh, I'm not through with this question. Just a second, Brent. Question one, I mean, excuse me, position one would be, I'll view the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. Therefore, the Old Testament is my guiding light, and I view the New Testament through that filter, which would say that unless the commandment is taken out in the New Testament, unless it is overtly terminated, then it still stands. And a great illustration is the Sabbath. And a great illustration is tithing. And I'm not going to discuss polygamy. But the first two we'll talk about, okay? Now, in the Old Testament, if, if I go from this view and try to maintain consistency on our interpreted, I'm clearly commanded to adhere to the Sabbath, correct? Take a day of rest, take off. Now, if I go the other direction and look at the Scriptures, if I come over here and look back that way, and I'm going to say, I'm only going to view the New Testament, Old Testament in light of what the New Testament is, and I'm going to call the commands of Christ 
whatever that New Testament sets as a standard, I'm going to say to you that Sabbath never made its way into the New Testament. Never. It is never restated in the New Testament. Therefore, what do I do with it? I can be under instruction of it, and the day of rest is good to go to, but I am not under the command of the Sabbath. I think that's my point. It's just saying, position one, uh, if it doesn't, if New Testament doesn't wipe out the Old Testament, you go by what the Old Testament says. So why can't you do it? No, the position same? one is yeah, unless you watch it out. Now, position right. two. Why can't you say the same thing if if the New Testament doesn't? Now, position two takes a very very much significant difference. It says unless it is restated, it has to be restated. It has to be restated. Restated. But why are you Otherwise, saying that? Why can't if it's not stated in New Testament, why can't you? say then we got to live by the Old Testament. That kind of goes along with the same way as you're saying position one. Am I so I'm saying, what, is, what part of the law drops off? You know, so what we did is we came up with three classifications of the law. There's ceremonial, there's dietary, there's the moral law. The Bible never makes that distinction. You want to make that distinction? We're trying to get around it so we know how to deal with it. There's only two ways you can approach it. You can approach it by looking this way or that way. And those would be the guiding line. If I go this way, I'm suggesting to you that here are some of the, here are some of the things it does to you. And the Old Testament is the standard now. There's two standards. There's an Old Testament standard and there's a New Testament standard. The Old Testament is doctrinal, just like the New Testament. And I look down this way and I start to think about the kingdom of heaven on earth. And I begin to think about the theocracy. And I begin to think about Israel. And all of that goes along with it. Now, once again, guys, I don't adhere to this. But I know why guys get into this. But what you can't do is you can't buy that and not buy the rest of it. Because the rest of it comes with it. Walt, yes, sir. Let's assume for a moment that I adhere to position number two. Let us assume further that I read the Old Testament and feel that God would have me obey one of the Old Testament commands not repeated in the New Testament. Tithing. Not eating pork. Okay? Am I free as an individual to adhere to that command providing I don't make it obligatory on others? Everybody hear the question? Okay, and that's position two. It would get back, the answer would be the way you described the question. It's my understanding that would be your personal conviction, and you could adhere to that as a commandment. And you're accountable before God because you declare that as a personal guideline to your life. All right? But once again, it gets down to motive. Why are you doing that, and what are you trying to get at? But the issue comes back around, that would be very legitimate. All right, but for you to walk up to me and say, Gail, I think you ought to, 10% is the way you do it. I know a pastor, a famous pastor that says, the Bible teaches tithing. We believe tithing. Tithe. I want to suggest to you, the Bible instructs us in tithing, says it's a darn good deal, but doesn't command it. It says each man must give as he decided for himself. You have an individual responsibility in the Scripture to step up to the line and decide what you're going to do with the gifts God gives you. Now, you may adopt tithing and say, out of this, God, this is what I think I, I'm going to do, and I think that's very legitimate. The good news is, you get to decide where you draw the line. 
The bad news is you get to explain it to God when you go to heaven. <laughs> that, that's the deal, guys. I, when I, just a minute, Dave. This, Brent, did you get your question in? So, regardless of the dispensation period that I'm living in, I'm only responsible for the commands that were given in that period. Yes, I can. Yeah, that's correct, Brent. And I will say to you, I can find great lessons out of going back and studying Genesis, but it's instructional and not obligatory. Now, so you're trying to understand what am I obligated to? What are the commands of Christ? Under what commands am I called to obey? If, Gail, you're right, obedience is a big deal, then how do, what do I obey? And I'm just trying to cut a line for us to get it down where we can get our hands on it. Dave, one more. Yes, okay, sir. in position two, the simplest way for me to understand it, and I have to understand everything simple, is that looking back through a position two, I am obligated, well, I live under grace, but I should, to love God, obey the New Testament commandments given by Christ. Well, let's, let's stop this moment. Walt said this morning, I tried to say yesterday, I want to drive it in. We are deep, we are under deep obligation to God to obey the commandments. I, I, I don't want to have any questions on that one. The issue we're just debating is what is the command? Okay, but in the, if you look at the Old Testament, I think the, for my own life, to me is a good set of guidelines and standards to try to live my life by. Guidelines to obedience. New Testament is obligation to obedience. Would that be a That's fair right. statement? Guidelines, instructional, yeah. uh, good proverbs, pithy statements about life. But I got to tell you, there's some stuff in the Old Testament that's deeply impacted my life, oh, sure. and I'm under obey, I'm under personal conviction on some of those things, and I'm obeying them. But don't take it to others because it'll be legalism, like you said. If you're in position two, you cannot do that. And once again, guys, interpretation demands consistency. I can't say I buy the issue on Sabbath in position one, and I buy the position in tithing in position two. You have what you call schizophrenic hermeneutics. Doesn't go that way. Because once I do that, what does that mean? That means I will always interpret the Scripture in light of what I want to achieve. Are you with me on that? It's not complicated to interpret the Scripture. It's just staying consistent. Once you take the rules that you read your books with and go do that, you can get into the Scripture and begin to make it come alive. But you've got to stay consistent. You can't jump to your convenience. Are we together? It's an important thing. The Old Testament, New Testament. Excuse me, Brian. See your hand up. Yes. We're dealing strictly here with the commands of God. So in each dispensation, I can say I'm all, I'm under obligation for these commands, but I cannot, and I'm not under obligation to earlier commands. But I cannot say that also that all the promises and all the commitments of God have changed. I can't. I cannot extrapolate it any further than just the commands of God. You said, has the promises changed? That was your question. Well, I, I mean, the, has, the commitments that God made during those times, are. Com I can't say that he no longer has to keep those commitments. No, but the issue is, do the, do the commitments apply to me? That's what I want to get at at the Scripture level. What promises are mine? What's the deal? Guys, one of the reasons we fail in the Scripture is you don't know what the deal is with God. He said, here's the deal, God. I'm going to obey you. And I'll be a millionaire. How about that, God? You like that one? God, I'll have a perfect life, and my children will be perfect, and my wife will always think I'm wonderful. I'll drive big cars and smoke cigars, and I'll be okay. That's not in the deal. 
And so we begin to hypothesize about what God's doing for us and what he's committed to. My question, too, is what is he committed to? He lays out things in the scripture. He says you can bank on these. Don't bank on these. So what we do in our theology, and remember, theology is only to your value, is we begin to say, well, I believe a little bit of this, and I believe a little bit of this, but I like a promise over here, but how about a promise over there? And by the way, you've got to adhere to this, but I'm going to adhere to this. And so let me tell you, that's your Bible, not God's. You're accountable for how you view it, and it's supposed to help you be able to better perform for God in the, in the marketplace. So how do you approach it? And what are the promises? And I'm going to say to you, if you accept position one, the natural outgrowth of that is that the promises become to us, excuse me, really go to the church, because the church is Israel. Are you with me on that? And so those promises are mine, and Israel is over with. We have theocratic tendencies, and Israel has no more promises from God. You know, i got some scriptures I can massage around and come up with that conclusion. They're out of here. I can show you very strong issues by uh, in the scriptures that says, Israel, God's not through with Israel. If I take this position, the promises are not to me. They're general promises made to the country of Israel in their theocratic position, but God may speak through one of those promises to me. But that's between myself and God. But those promises are not to everyone in this room. Does that make sense? They're general promises as opposed to specific promises. The only specific promises are those in the New Testament. In this position. But just because those promises are, are not valid for me, it doesn't mean that those promises are not still valid for Israel. Thank you. The whole point is Israel is still a commodity with God. Uh, one of the great theologians I was listening to one time said, it's like God was showing a movie of Israel. And about on frame 1,000 with 3,000 frames to go, he just turned the camera off, moved to the side, put the, cam the projector up and turned the one on about the Gentiles. And he's just watching the Gentile movie now. When the Gentile movie's over, he'll turn it off, rapture them out, bring the camera back on, turn on the Israel, and he'll complete the, complete the movie of the Israelites. He's just not through with them yet. We just have a very significant pause going on. <laughs> and there's a lot of scripture that substantiates that posture. But if you take position one, then Israel is gone. God's through with Israel, and we become the whole, the church becomes the whole issue. And that has significant, deep ramifications to it on how we view the kingdom of heaven, etc. Kingdom of God. Beg your pardon? I'm saying, no, I'm saying the church, the church has its own covenant with God. The day of the Gentile church will be gone, and Israel will return, and God will finish up his covenant to the Israelites. He's not through with them yet. No, excuse me. I said that's my position. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to talk down on you on the thing. I'm just saying, asking my position. Okay. Any other question on this? It, it depends on how you look at the testament, guys. All I'm all I'm asking you to do is look at what God's giving you in the Bible. What do you obey? And position two says I'm under obligation to the New Testament commandments. I'm under instruction of the Old Testament. And if I'm under instruction, are instructions absolute? Are they Guiding me. They're guidance. Who gets to interpret how to imply, uh, apply instructions? You do as an individual. Therefore, they become convictions. They do not become absolutes. There was a hand. Yes, Jim. In light of position two, Gail, how, how do you deal with uh, Proverbs and uh, in terms of promises? How do we apply that to Okay, The us? Proverbs, once again, would be general but not specific. And Proverbs are really more of a series of pithy observations 
by a man of wisdom on how the commands of God play themselves out in the marketplace. They are not absolutes. They are not commands. They're instructional and observational in position two. So what do we obey? We're getting there. <laughs> we do know, I'm going to suggest to you position two. The reason, guys, I want to go through the positions, I want you to also grasp the implications. There are very significant implications. If I buy into position one, it will deeply affect how I live my life. I buy into position two, it will deeply affect how I live my life. Understand that. Are we through with that? Now, that once I take this off, we'll never return to it again. The subject is shut, sealed, and totally discussed. You cannot ask a question. No, this is not a pause. I mean, we're out of here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, yeah. Uh, Gail, how do you, uh, if you take position two, how do you deal with Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments? Just... Oh, the Ten Commandments, what we've been talking about. The Sabbath is in the Tenth Commandments. And it's just never discussed. The other nine are discussed and restated. Very good point. Thanks for bringing that up. That's the point I was trying to make. Yeah, Jim. Uh, you talked about the promises uh, in the commandments. How does this uh, concept affect the character of God? How is that dealt with? Is it apply? Yep. I think it's under instructions. Remember... Is the commands of God? I made a comment. Let me ask it this way. I, asked a moment, I said a moment ago that the character of God is propositional. Would you agree or disagree? It's propositional because it states uh, God is a God of mercy. But we also see it through the transactions of how He deals with His people, right or wrong. Romans 15:4 says what? We gain hope. And how do we gain hope? Because we see God prevail in the history of man. Would you guys agree or disagree? That's why we have the Old Testament. Agree? So I'd say to you, the character of God is demonstrated in instruction and in illustration, and it also states valid things about character. That's all instructional. But that's propositional. Those are not commands. All right? Okay. We talked about you while you were gone, Lon. I knew it. What's the next position we need in the Bible? Okay, we talked about the Bible as a whole, right? And we talked about the Old Testament and New Testament. And I want to suggest to you another thing you must come to grips with is your position on eschatology. Another one of these great seminarial words, next only to hermeneutics. All right? Or amillennialism, or inerrancy, or superlaptarianism. <laughs> or other things like that. Or patrician. <laughs> Let's face it. No, okay? Now we need to know that, and I want to try to convince you of why that is true. And then I want to try to give you, really, I'm going to say to you, there's really only two positions you can take. The Revelation is the end of the Bible, it is the end of time. It's the end of the story. It's the last chapter. How many of you ever read a book, go read the last chapter first, so you'll understand the rest of the book better? Have you ever done that? I'll tell you what, I read books two times sometimes because I get completely fooled. I get to the last chapter. I say, oh, if I'd only known that, go back and read the dumb thing again. Because what it does is it creates a new filter on how I read what I, the other earlier parts. Would you agree or disagree? So the eschatology serves that very significant person. 
purpose. It is a backstop that shows where it's over with. Now, there's only two things that can happen at the end of the story. One of them is God wins, or the other one, God loses. Now, if God loses, we don't need to discuss the rest of the Bible. <laughs> In eschatology, God wins, and so that becomes an issue to us. Now, the story ends with God winning. Now, the question to us is what does that look like when God wins? Are you with me? If, that, if we know how the story ends and what the score on the scoreboard is, then we know how to play all the endings and where not to become anxious and when to become anxious and those kind of things. The story's over with. We win. How does it end up? Now, I want to suggest to you there's only two ways it can end up. There are two popular interpretations of eschatology. Guys, and I am not a great theologian, and I want to tell you there's 15 ways they broadcast them. But one of them is an extreme here, and the other one is an extreme over here, and all the other things you hear about are just modifications, a little bit of this and a little bit of that to put it together, or a position two degrees up and ten degrees up and twenty degrees up. So let me, let me discuss two of them. One of them is that man pushes forward under the commands of the God, uh, commands of God, and creates the kingdom of heaven here on earth. That the church dominates and we prepare society ready for the second return of Christ. Christ returns and triumphantly the church turns over society to Christ and Christ is either allegorically already rule a thousand years or he rules a thousand years with this great product we have developed. It's our job to institute righteousness in our society and prepare the kingdom of God on earth. The victory is Christ returning and us handing victoriously to Christ the fruits of our labor. That is one interpretation of eschatology. Okay? The other one is that Christ comes back <clears throat> excuse me, and gather to him his people and through his work, the kingdom of heaven is established on earth. Yes, we've done this piece and that piece and that piece, but he brings it together to a complete finish. And so the work of the Gentiles is over with, and then he stops and finishes the work with the Jews. Are you with me? Position one says the Jewish deal is over with. It's our job to get society ready to hand it back to Jesus. The other one says each man is called to a point of influence where he is touching. You are only responsible for your sphere of influence. God and Christ pulls it all together into a meaningful solution. And when Christ comes back, he then finishes up his situation with the Jews. And ostensibly then, the book of Revelation is a story of him dealing with the Jews. In one, we see a tremendous social responsibility. In another, we see a responsibility not to society, but to the individual in evangelizing or edifying. That the work of the ministry then is as you meet and know people, to bring them into the light of who Jesus Christ is. Introduce them to the reality of the saving blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. And be continue to invest yourself in people, allowing Christ to do the work to finish up the problem of how he knits the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Do you see the two differences? That's only two places all that teaching brings you. Do you see the two positions? I didn't get a nod at you. you see, did I not explain them well enough? 
Did you? Did you see him? Okay, good. Roger? Jim? All right. Now, they both have implications. If I believe position one, that it's my job to create society to ready to hand back to Christ, where, therefore, must I give my efforts? Social reform, not only the winning of people to Christ, it doesn't mean they don't win people to Christ, but I have an enormous obligation to straightening out the mess that I have in society. And I must give the time, and that, therefore, becomes the ministry. Not only people in E squared, but that becomes the ministry. And that's the straightening out of society. So almost by default, I must go to position one on the Old Testament. Don't have to, but that almost drives me to position one on the Old Testament. The Jews are over with. It's up to me to finish up the kingdom of heaven here. That's how the book ends. The other way you can look at it is that as I come back to second. Oh, excuse me. Let me yeah, ask that question on that position. Have some water, Ned. about the Jewish people now until they turn the movie back on? Well, as I understand it, as they turn off one movie, they'll turn back on the other movie. So there's not a gap. Are you saying... I don't know what this question is. Help me with the question. What happens to the Jewish nation during this period of time that the Gentile movie is running, using that analogy? Well... He is preparing and positioning the Jewish nation for his return. We may want to discuss the horrors of World War II, but one thing World War II accomplished with the Jewish nation is it drove them back to Israel. And no other event in the history of European history has ever driven them back. And one of the major things we had to do to fulfill the eventual positioning of the events for the return of Christ was to get Israel back, get the Jewish people back in Israel. Are, are the Zionists, all of Israel, I don't know how to make those cuts. Which one are the remnant and which one are not the remnant? God knows those. He is positioning them for that return. And when he returns, the millennium will be played out. As it, excuse me? That's, that's not what I'm, I'm sorry. I'm asking, what is our responsibility, what is our relationship I apologize. with the Jewish people during this period of time? I understand the question. I didn't understand it. It's like any other person, and that is E squared. I'm going to evangelize and edify them. They tell me, and I don't know this, but they say statistically there has never been a movement among the Jewish nation of people coming to Christ out of the Jewish nation like there is today since the first century church. The, percent, the number of people coming across. I cannot, I mean, I don't have, any, this is what I read. But I would say to you that the responsibility for a guy to come to Christ is through the truth of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ. And our job is to be evangelizing them and edifying them just like any other person. All right? Now, I understand that, Lon. And we voted up here and we'd ask you to leave permanently. Do you mind? This is just the IRS. <laughs> okay. Now, these are two radically different views, guys. These are not look-alike views. They're radically different. Both of them say that the problem of man is depravity. They're not arguing that question. But one states that E square is our major ministry and the other says it's E squared plus the reforming of society. These are very significant issues. 
Therefore, as you position yourself on what this book says, will determine not only your view of the local church, but also your view of what is your job to do until Christ comes back. As we were talking about John on having a purpose of being an influence within the business and an influence within our contact, is it to reform all the transactions or is it to, ref- is to introduce people to the reality of Jesus Christ? Position two says my job is to be a representative of Jesus in the marketplace, introducing people to the reality of Christ and who Christ is. So it's very key how you come down this issue in understanding the Bible. Otherwise, you'll get schizophrenic hermeneutics. Because on one side you want to race out and solve all the problems in society. And the other one, and and you'll say, well, that in itself has virtue outside the concept of E squared. And therefore, I can go into social action and leave a lot of injured people behind without ever winning them to the reality of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, men, if I stop the Holocaust before they kill the seven million, what is the value if all those people died and went to hell? There's no value in the rescue. The rescue is always centered on the ability to introduce them to the reality of Christ. So how you position yourself in that is very, very key. Any questions? Yes, sir. Question on uh, Titus 3. And uh, you've read that, and uh, uh, doesn't it talk succinctly about uh, the, the second position, if that's the second position and not I don't the have first? It. Yeah. Does that speak uh, specifically to it in your mind? Yeah, I think it does. But let me also say to you, I can go into other parts of the Scripture which would lean you over to position one also. Okay. New Testament. Mm-hmm. I think the preponderance of evidence takes you to position two. I was raised people saying to me, this is, now this is Layman Gale talking to you guys. This old country boy raised up in the North Plains of Texas. I was always raised in the position that said, there are a lot of views on the end times. It is too mysterious for us to understand. And one of these days, all that will be explained to us. So don't worry about it. And as I have gone through training and listening and trying to learn, I want to say to you, that's a bunch of bull. How the chapter, how the book ends is critically important to how do I live my life. I can give my life to a lot of things that mean nothing in the economy of God. You remember the time we were talking, I said, I always imagine going up to God and handing him my scorecard, and he'd say, A, B, C, A, B. Great grades, Gail. Wrong courses, but great grades. (laughs) And an interpretation where you move away from these truths will take you to great grades, wrong courses. You really did a great job in that situation, but that wasn't a situation I was remotely interested in. So it becomes critically important how you interpret it. And I want to suggest to you the Scripture is strong enough and our revelation is strong enough and our evidence is strong enough that I think you can come down on a position and hold to it. And I really encourage you guys to do that. There was a question somewhere here. Yes? Are we seeing uh, in our day a lot of people who believe the second position but are somewhat sidetracked from E squared, as it were, uh, trying to solve things politically, uh, Christians trying to, you know, go out and solve the problems. Uh. I think you meant position one, and that's where I'm going to solve the social ills. That's part of the ministry, that right. the Jewish well, nation... I'm saying that there seems to be a lot of people in evangelical churches who believe, or say they believe, position two, but they were so troubled by the world that we live in that we're going out 
with placards and uh, whatever yeah. it takes to do to try and to try to solve things uh, maybe in uh, ways other than evangelism yeah, and education. Let, let me make a comment on that uh, because there's one more point I want to cover on the Bible. I always thought I could stand up in an audience of very bright guys like you and say to you that Schaefer said in his book, The Great Evangelical Disaster, that the watershed issue of the 20th century for the church was abortion. And a bunch of you would say, hua, hua. And then I'd say to you, okay, how many here are post-millennial or pre-millennial? And you'd say, huh? And so you're moving out of emotion towards issues without understanding the ramification of what you're giving your life to. A layman that reads the Bible almost for sure will come up with a premillennial concept. Now, let's not get into word, but that Christ is going to come back, which is position two, and the kingdom of heaven is his to work out. There's a preponderance of evidence. The first century church was deeply committed to position two. They got some heretical views about the Jews in there that Walt brought up yesterday, but they were committed to position two. But the issue is because social action is so seductive that it can't be true that that's not what God would want me to do. I've got to correct my society. How can I live in this cesspool? I can straighten this cesspool out. I have the answer to solving the problem. Guys, 2,000 years of history says that's a chase of folly. I want to say to you again, reform of a nation has never brought revival. Only revival has brought reform. Secondly, I want to say to you, the revival is always predominantly individual and not corporate. Every now and then the Holy Spirit moves in an incredible way and moves a nation. But that's the job of the Holy Spirit. The job is individual revival within, with you becoming a man of God and you passing it on. But it's so stinking seductive to solve a problem. We're going to go solve the problem of the poor. Well, my master and my savior said the poor are going to always be with you. And we're never called into the inner city to help the poor with the resolution in our mind that I'm going to solve their problem. Because first place, that isn't a problem. God said they're going to be there. If God didn't want them there, he'd get rid of them. Get rid of the poor situation. The issue is a test of my own faith and helping me exercise what prosperity God has given me in the assistance and his brotherly love to these people. It's all the view of how you approach the thing. And it's how you view the end chapter tells you how you're going to approach it. Good enough. So we talked about the Bible at whole. We talked about the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have slammed every seminary in town. And we've talked about the book of Revelation. Now let me go on to the last part. And a lot of this has already been taught by Ned. And so I know I can go at great speed. A few years ago I had the privilege of working with Walt on a, a book that we wrote together about application. And as we summed up uh, the contributions at the end, I want to say to you guys that... Uh, Walt and I looked at it, and I did do the table of contents. He did everything else, but I did the table of contents. And as we looked at what commands we were to obey, let me get it back, let me get it back. We looked at the, the commandments we were to obey, we realized that there was a body of commands which were absolute commands. 
And they were always the negative commands. Why are negative commands absolute? Why, TJ? They are measurable. Do you understand it? Does it make sense to you? Why is a negative command measurable? You either did or you didn't, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Guys, I can tell you when you've committed adultery. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. I can't tell you when you loved your wife. I don't know. That's a positive commandment. I can't measure you. A negative commandment, I know when you cross the line. I can tell my children, don't do something. I knew when they didn't do it. That was clear as can be. When I said to Scott and Chris, do good, I always had them. I, that was always when I loved them. Because when they didn't do what I wanted them to do, I could hit them. <laughs> they didn't. But there's a body of negative commands which bound and constrict our life. Now, what we say is two things about the commands of God. Now, remember, we've been trying to reduce that. What commands do we obey? And I'm going to say, position two, that only those commands which are restated in the New Testament. All right? And my question to me then is, there's two things that always, they always say. Well, one, are they in my best interest? Or is not God denying me a lot of wonderful things? Well, I want to say to you, that we, as we begin to evaluate these, we begin to realize it's like a huge acreage that we can run around in. The boundaries are very loose. They're out there in the sky somewhere. Now, if that piece of tape is the boundary, here's what we do. We walk right up to the tape and say, uh, God, is that the line? Yeah. How about this, God? Can I do that? Can I do this? How about this, God? Now, i got acres and acres and acres to go around in, but I love the line. And How many of you have children, small children? Tell me, do they go to the line? How about this, Dad? You like that one? I'll do that one for you, too. And guys, we behave just the same way God does on that. I mean, our children do. But let me all say to you, this is an enormous boundary we can move around in. Not only is it not restrictive, it is in our best interest. I never heard anybody said to me, I'm really glad I violated all the commandments of God. Never heard anybody say, boy, that was a good deal. The way my wife divorced me, my kids hated me. That was a great deal. The way I went, you know, they put me in prison for stealing that money. I'm going to tell you, I just think that's so wonderful. <laughs> you don't ever see that kind of product. They're in our best interest, but they are enormous negative boundaries. Are we together on that? So keep that picture in your mind. <laughs> that's a rascal. That baby will take your wind out. Now remember, we're trying to understand what the commands of Christ are. What do we obey? And I want to suggest to you, not exhaustive, but there are a number of commandments type in the Scripture. There are negative commands. We've said those are your absolute boundaries. We got that down? There are positive commandments. Honor your parents. What does it mean to honor your parents? We talked about that a few years ago. I don't know what that looks like, but it's individual and you're responsible for it and you must obey it. There are commands in which God is silent on. A few years ago, it became very vogue that we should quit using contraception and let God judge that in an issue of faith and it was being preached as a commandment around the United States. I remember that very vividly. And the issue was that God would govern how many children you had. And some of the leaders at the age of 45 had children. They shifted their position on the commandment almost immediately. <laughs> the Bible is silent on contraception, guys. You must decide that position. 
There's instruction. We just talked about the Old Testament being instructional. Examples. The life of David. The life of Joseph. Out of that we can extract truths that we want to obey. Are you with me? But they are not in the sense of a negative commandment. There's also suggestions in the Bible, which are not commands. He suggests a behavior. One of them is, uh, men, you should not even, you shouldn't even touch women. I've always had trouble with that one. <laughs> yeah, tough deal, anyway. Let me not get into that. So what we do is, and I'm going to redraw that picture for you, that we must ourselves decide how we apply these instructions. And what we've done so far is just develop a matrix by which we understand where these come from. Are you with me? The Bible in whole, the old versus the New Testament, and the end times. That's all that's done is built a filter. And so I can say, I know where a lot of positive commands are, and I know where the negative commandments are. That's all I've tried to do is build a filter. Now, guys, are, we're no, are there more negative commandments, or are there more positive commandments? More positive. There's more issues God's silent on. There's more instructional things. There's more example issues than ever are in the negative commandments. We've already said, which one is the easiest to obey? The negative, because once again, on the positive, the rule is you get to decide what you do. The, that's the good news. The bad news is you get to review with God why you made that decision. That is your liberty to move around and make that commandment. We have a great liberty moving here. Our issue is how we deal with the light God has given us. Now, as we begin to apply those, what those become are convictions. And our convictions are self-imposed restrictions in which I govern where I live off of the line. And so instead of getting right up on the line and doing this with God, I say I understand my weakness and my commitment is to serve you, my commitment is to obey you, and I will self-impose a line back here. Because I don't want to get that close that I stick my leg over. Are you together with me? And conviction describes it's self-imposed. And in some cases, some guys might do this, and in some cases, some guys might do that. I have some tremendous sin in my life from my past. I've had to draw my convictions way back because I destroyed that wall. And that's your illustration right here. And I had to pull those back. That's not your conviction, that's mine. I had to for my own protection. Now something that I've, been, I've put on this chart since I drew this a number of years ago, and Ned, you brought this up too, and that there's an accountability line in here also. I have men in my life, I say, guys, even if I have the appearance of evil, call my hand on it. If you see me drifting in the wrong direction, call my hand on it. Convictions are boundaries which turn on the light that says you're going too far to the wall, slow down. Accountability is my first line of defense. Men who look into my life and say, Gail, I think, I think you're making a series of decisions which you hadn't picked up on your radar yet, which is taking you right out to a crash wall. Are you with me on it? And accountability is a significant thing, and I'm not going to talk on accountability, but it is also part and parcel of the conviction. Well, what about convictions? 1 Corinthians 7.1 tells us we shouldn't even touch a woman. As I talked to my boys, I said, guys, uh, there's a suggestion you not even touch a woman. It's good advice from the Scriptures. I want to tell you at the end that you shall not commit fornication. Now, guys, somewhere between here and here, you've got to draw your line. That's your line to draw. But let me assure you, son, when the red light's going out here, you're in no man's land get out of there. There's no question to ask. You're in sin. But it's up to you to draw your position because purity is much as an important thing to you as it is to the woman. 
Purity is not the responsibility of the woman. It's the responsibility of yours, just like it is to the woman. It is important to be pure. Now, I use that as an illustration, and I say to my sons, then you draw the line where you are. But soon, when you draw that line, draw it seriously and take good counsel on it and hold that line because in the long of your life, that's an important conviction to have. The same thing in business on lying. The thing I've always had trouble with, one of the many things, but one thing was, was lying. And what really constitutes a lie? From allowing you to misunderstand to overtly telling you a lie. Now, I grew up in the sales business, and I remember many a time having a customer not understanding how to ask the right question. And I knew that he didn't know how to ask the right question. And he didn't know that I knew that he didn't know how to ask the right question. And I had that guy checkmated. And I allowed him to sucker right on into the deal. My question to you, was I lying to him? Not in black and white, but as I look at my convictions, I was totally wrong. If my commitment is to serving that man, and that's what it's about, if my convictions are, if my commandments to me by God is to serve that man, then the responsibility is mine if I know that he doesn't know that I know that he doesn't know how to ask the right question. And I should say to him, the question you ought to be asking me is, and that's my conviction on the line because all God said is don't lie. But he told me to be a servant. Does that make sense to you? And those are convictions. And they are the things that will govern the majority of your behavior. Convictions are self-imposed. I'm going to give you about three or four rules. Listen to them. They're self-imposed. It's your decision on what to do. And you're accountable to God for your decision. Secondly, it is your decision, and it is not somebody else's command. Where I draw the line is not where you draw the line. That's up to you to draw the line. Third, they are determined in the time of calm to govern me in the time of crisis. You don't wait till the crisis comes to determine what my conviction is. I'm not in the midst of a sales call on a million-dollar deal and says, I think I will really learn to amplify my honesty. That's not when I do it, guys. I do it long before that when I'm in the calm of my own time with God and say, God, this is what I know you want me to do. This is my line. And when I get into the battle, that red light goes off, the trigger goes off, and I respond to my convictions with God. Fourth, they can be changed as time goes along as new evidences are brought to you, or as you look at your own life. But they should always be exercised in the context of accountability. That's just four quickies on you. What's the second of those? You asked me to remember that. What was it? You're not as legal as someone else. Yeah, let me jump to that. They are my convictions. I cannot impose my convictions on you. Yeah, they're self-imposed, but I can't impose mine on you. Now, there's four words we use a lot in Christianity. To me, the most overused, misunderstood word is legalism. I was, in a, I was in a retreat in Maine. I was talking to a bunch of guys, and I said to them, what is legalism? And the guy said to me, any time I obey the commandment is legalism. <laughs> guys, we laugh about that, but I want to say to you, we're almost that bad. Any time I say to the guy, you should, be, I mean, you should not be committing adultery. Quit being legalistic with me. You've got to understand, the negative commandments are not up for vote. God didn't say, how does everybody feel about this one? He didn't put these up to vote, and we can vote on them from society to society. They are absolute commands, and we're to obey them. Legalism is the judging of another in light of my own standards, in convictions. 
zealousness is he who is zealous about his interpretation of the Bible into his life, afraid of his own depravity, seeking for the Holy Spirit to guide him, and tough on himself. Tough on himself about those commandments. And we sneer at zealousness. Jesus never sneered at zealousness. That zealousness is a man who is... Well, let's go back to what Walt's talk was. A man who's denying himself. A man who is dying to himself. A man who's taking the word seriously and pushing himself through a tough strain. Interpreting the scripture rigidly in his life. Rigidity. We yell at a guy for being rigid. Praise God he's rigid. Just so he doesn't say to me, I've got to be rigid by the same dimension he is. We should be deeply afraid of our depravity. Depravity is a very scary thing. Liberty, it's free from captivity or restraint. It's the, we're, not, we're not under the old law. We have a tremendous liberty to wander around in here. But liberty does not mean that I'm so free from God that I break through that command and continue to break through that and presume that God will just overlook it. We already read in the Scripture that says if we spend a lifetime doing these kind of things and disregarding the reality of Christ and disregarding the issue of sin, we have no reason to be assured of our salvation. Doesn't mean we lost our salvation. There's a good question. You're ever saved. That's what the assurance issue is about. So we have great liberty, but don't be, a, don't be presumptuous on the grace of God. Don't curb zealousness within yourself. Don't scorn a man who's zealous for God. Don't act legalistic to others by enforcing your applications on other people. Let me suggest to you, as a parent, we are to take our convictions and put them down on the children as rules. As they get older, though, you must take them through a process of teaching them to have their own convictions. Because convictions of this generation our traditions to the next generation is the rebellion to the next generation. Are you with me? And so, as I raise my boys and my daughter, I, my rigidity is wonderful. There's nothing wrong with being rigid. The issue is, though, when they start to come of age, to begin to train them to think through what are you committed to. Because it doesn't matter what I'm committed to. It matters what you're committed to. Are you with me on that? It's the transfer of the baton into their hands. And we must do that. Live in liberty... But don't presume on the grace of God. As Walt said, don't get to the position where Jesus says, I never knew you. As you continue to violate your relationship to him. Now guys, obedience is very, very serious. We are called to a life of obedience. It is a cornerstone of our life. Just like grace is. It's a cornerstone concept of Christianity. What I tried to cover with you today, hurriedly, and I know with not great articulation, but what I tried to cover with you is how do you approach to understand what commands you are under obligation to. Some of the negative commandments are very strict, but by and large, most of it is left upon you that with the power of the Holy Spirit and the study of the Word and good brothers around you, you make the determination of how you're going to apply that Scripture. I encourage you to take it seriously. I encourage you in the year to come, when we'll be separated over the next year, that you be men that seriously take the word and begin to try to understand it and build a series of true systems into your life that you will be distinguished as men of God because you're men of obedience so that your light will so shine before men that they may see your good work 
but give glory to your Father who is in heaven.